Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Shane White with Remax Town & Country in Liberty Hill, Texas. Last year, he closed 94 transactions with a total sales volume of $15 million. His average sales price was $161,000, of which 46% were buyers and 54% were sellers. He operates a team with eight members, three buyer specialists, one listing coordinator, one part-time bookkeeper, one virtual assistant, one commercial broker, and one team leader. Shane White is the team leader of the Shane T. White team. He has been an agent for 12 years. He works the rural area 30 miles northwest of Austin. Shane has sold over 1,500 homes in his career. In his best year, 2007, Shane sold 207 homes worth $36 million. In this call, Shane talks about his parents' influence on his career, dominating in a small rural market, business planning and reviewing numbers monthly, cutting expenses to achieve higher profits, past client and sphere of influence maintenance program and schedule, client appreciation events including Christmas and November party, Thanksgiving pie giveaway, and football tailgating events community and school involvement programs, market presence, reputation, and geographic farming, evaluating your marketing effectiveness by tracking and comparing your lead sources, closing sources, and commission income, team structure, and buyer specialist compensation, using a virtual assistant and tasks assigned, expense and net profit percentages, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Shane. Thank you. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I guess I'll go back to when I was in college. Uh, my brother and I grew up on the Texas coast in Rockport. And so in the summers while we were in college, we decided we were going to open a jet ski rental business. And so for about three summers, you know, we would take off school, uh, head back down to the coast and, and run and operate a a jet ski rental business. So that was kind of my first venture into entrepreneurship. So you ran that during the summers of college. Was it profitable? Did you make some money? We did. I mean, it, it, we basically did it to uh, to be able to help pay for college and expenses while we were going through school. So it was a learning experience. I mean, uh, we had to figure out how to do a performa to take to the bank to be able to get financing. We learned, obviously, about uh, legal things. Had a couple of accidents where 
uh, people were supposed to pay and didn't, so we had to take them to small small claims court and things like that. So definitely a learning experience. You went off to school. Did you graduate with a degree? Yes, sir. Went to and graduated from Texas A&M University with a degree in business management. Got out of school in 1997. My wife and I uh, were engaged at the time. Ended up moving to Houston, where I ended up working for a, a home builder right out of college. So that's how you got into real estate? Sort of. Out of college, went and worked. One of the large home builders in the Houston area wrote, uh, I think it was Royce Homes at the time. They may be Royce Builders now. Did some pretty heavy recruiting at Texas A&M. Texas A&M has a, a good building uh, builder management program, which I did not go through. But they had opportunities where we were able to interview with companies, interviewed with them, thought it would be an interesting job, uh, not a typical sit-in-the-office-all-day type situation. So signed on with, with Royce, moved to Houston, and, and built with them for a couple of years, two or three years, I guess, and kind of went from there. I mean, my wife's dad had been a broker for 25 years or so, uh, but I hadn't really thought about getting into the real estate part of it until she had an opportunity to move with her company back to the Austin area. And so when she had that opportunity, we thought, well, we'll move. And original goal was we'll get our real estate license and kind of work with her dad. Uh, but at the same time, I thought, at that point in time, I always thought I would get back into building here on my own. But once we got into the sales side of real estate and really kind of learned a lot from, from her dad on, on what the industry was and things of that nature, just never did get back into the building side of it. When you were down in Houston with Royce, you were on the construction side. You weren't on the sales side. Correct. Yeah, so Royce had a really good program to bring basically kids in and teach them the construction process. They had a, a very good training program, and you, you kind of started with them uh, working beside another superintendent, doing a lot of warranty work, but they had a, a huge construction manual and, and basically learned the construction side of things was fairly successful with Royce there, kind of worked my way up in the ranks. And I think it was probably the second full year that I was with them, I won their Builder of the Year, which they called Stud of the Year Award, which they kind of base that on a number of homes built, how close you stayed in budget, how many extras you had. So there was a lot of different facets of, of uh, how quickly or on time you built the houses and things like that. So the challenge that I saw with working with them was – Lots and lots of hours had to be put in to be able to do that, and kind of time away from from my wife at that point once we got married. So I looked for other opportunities to stay in the building industry, but for a company that wasn't as demanding on my time. So I moved, made a move to a company called Trendmaker Homes, who was a production builder but did more what I call semi-custom homes. I mean, they allowed the the buyers to make changes and a lot more things. Uh, that are different from just a pure production type builder. So kind of made my move over to them and, and finished my building career out in Houston with Trendmaker Homes. And that initial grounding in the construction industry must have helped a lot with your knowledge base when you moved into sales. You would you would understand homes a lot more than the average agent. Yes. And actually, the the community that, that our office is based in, that we work in, Liberty Hill is located about 30 miles northwest of Austin, a rural area, quite a bit of new development going on. And when we moved here in, in 2000, my father-in-law had a had an exclusive listing agreement on a pretty big development called Sundance Ranch. 
and we did a lot of new construction work with a lot of builders. And my, my knowledge of the building side of that industry uh, was very helpful in, in working with buyers and, and kind of being the liaison between buyers and builders because I certainly knew from the builder side all the challenges that there were in building a home and the things that could go wrong and what the perception from the buyers could be as the building process is going along. So I was able to go back to the buyers and explain to them probably more so than, than the average agent could, you know, that these things are normal. There's going to be things that, that come up during the construction process. No home is perfect, you know, and kind of be the calming agent while that transaction was going on and especially while the house was being built. So definitely gave me some insight into that part of the real estate industry that I don't think most agents have. When you moved up to Austin and you got your license and you started going into sales with your father-in-law, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I would say I had a, a pretty quick start. I don't remember the the very first year because we moved in right after my daughter, my first daughter was born, which was in February. So I was probably up and running first part of March in, in 2000. And I probably first year closed somewhere around 20 transactions, something like that. And then within the within the first probably three years, as a solo agent, I was probably closing somewhere between 40 and 50 transactions a year. Now, our market, you know, we, we sell all types of properties because of us being, you know, more of a rural type community. So that could be residential lots, farm and ranch, commercial, and obviously residential. But the subdivisions that we were marketing at that time, you know, some of my numbers may be at the 50 level because we were able to sell builders, not only the lots that they were going to build on, but then turn around and list their spec homes for sale when they when they were ready to get them back on the market. So you've been in the business for, what, about 12 years? Yes, about 12 years, 12 and a half years. How many homes did you sell last year? I believe we sold right at, my our team sold right around 90 or 95 properties, which is down somewhat. Uh, last year was actually probably one of the slowest years that we have had in the last seven or eight. Part of that has to do with just the overall general economy being down and the housing industry being down. Our market really didn't ever take the hit that, you know, a lot of the high profile areas like in Arizona and Florida and Nevada and California took, but we never had the huge ramp up of prices and speculative buying and things like that either. Our market was a little bit behind the times. The the height of our market as far as number of sales and prices and things like that was around the 2007, 2008 timeframe. And then we saw prices adjust back down anywhere from, you know, 8 to 12 or 13% over the next couple of years. And our market has been relatively flat the last 18 months. This year, we have seen hint of a pickup first part of the year. The, the second half of the year has been a little bit slower, but not, not nearly as slow as what we saw last year. And so you picked up a little bit this year. How many homes have you sold year to date? Year to date. I don't know that number right off the top of my head. I think it's probably somewhere around 95 or so. We should be on track to close somewhere around 120 for the year if our averages continue out for the for the next couple of months. So obviously a, a significant improvement from from where we were last year. The thing that we've made significant strides in the last three or four years is cutting our expenses down so we can still remain profitable at lower sales numbers. So last year, even though our sales were down, we were still somewhat profitable, not as not as profitable as we wanted to be, uh, but we have been able to maintain that level of expenses 
throughout this year. And so with the increase in sales and, and volume, uh, our profitability should be back up this year. A few years back, in 2007, it was your best year. If I understand correctly, you closed, what, 207 transactions in 2007? Yes, I believe it was 207 transactions, somewhere around $36 million or $36.5 million. That was by far our best year. The, the previous two years to that, we were close to the 200 transaction mark, but the actual volume numbers weren't that high. Uh, gross commission income, I think in 2007, was just over a million. Uh, the previous two years were running around seven to eight hundred thousand. So, but we had a we had a couple of big ranch sales in 2007 that obviously helped our average sales price jump up. But those were again we're working with developers looking to buy properties that they would be able to turn around and develop residential lots. So it kind of goes back to having that construction background and being able to talk with builders and developers and and have those kinds of relationships where we're able to go out and and potentially sell a, you know, four or 500 acre ranch to a guy that wants to develop, you know, one acre lot community is is pretty nice. Is that what was going on back in 2005, 2006, 2007? Were you doing a lot of work with builders and developers? Yes, there's a couple of local builders in Liberty Hill that at that time were probably building and selling between 30 and 40 homes, including the customs that they did. But we had exclusive agreements in several neighborhoods with those builders that allowed us to sell, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 spec homes a year for them. So when the market was good and they were able to get a lot of construction financing and and uh, do these development deals, that certainly helped quite a bit. Now, as the market has slowed down, as lending has tightened up, the local banks have tightened up, I would say, almost even tighter than some of the traditional stuff. It's created a challenge for these builders to be able to get spec money or spec lines of money. And it's really created a challenge for people that want to have homes built, especially custom homes, uh, that may not have 20 to 25 or 30% to put down. They may qualify for a 5 or 10% down loan, but they can't get construction financing because the banks won't, won't do a 10% down construction loan. So that has definitely put a, a hindrance into the marketplace of what used to be a pretty large percentage of our business. Now, since then, we have made some uh, changes in some some of our marketing and, you know, decided we can't really have that much hinged on working, you know, that much time with just builders and developers. We really need to get back into doing, you know, either more resales or trying to work with investors or we're currently now looking at trying to penetrate some new markets and neighborhoods that we, you know, have never really focused or specialized in before. So, your business now has, in the last few years, has been more focused on past clients, referrals, your sphere of influence. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And we have always had an emphasis on really keeping up with our, our past clients. When I first got in the business, I was, I mean, I was just like a sponge trying to figure out, you know, what are these top agents doing? And my father-in-law had been a, a member of Star Power back at that point in time. And I can remember the first cassette tape back then, which was a cassette tape that he gave me was Sam Miller's. And I mean, I just could not believe, you know, the numbers that they were doing and the marketing and things like that. So it's always been, what are these guys doing? And over and over and over, a large percentage of what these top agents, where their business comes from is their past clients and referrals and things like that. So we've always had a focus on that. Let's talk about your market. You've been actually describing it pretty well. So you're in Liberty Hills, Texas, just 
northwest of Austin. It's a rural area. What's your population there? Are you in a small town or are you actually part of the Metroplex? Yeah, no, we're a small town. The actual city limits for Liberty Hill is really small. So the the population, if you drive into town and just look at the city limit sign, the population somewhere around 1,800. The core market for us would basically be the Liberty Hill Independent School District. And I would say that the mailings that we do to the school district are somewhere around 5,000 households. So I would say the population is probably somewhere, you know, 15 to 18,000 of the core area that we really have focused in in the past. But, I mean, when you drive into town, you're it's not quite yet. Now, the growth is coming to where we will eventually be kind of sucked up into the Metroplex. But right now, it, there's a definite feeling that, you know, you're driving between another town and you've got space and then all, all of a sudden you, you pull into Liberty Hill. So. You've described what's been going on in your current market. You mentioned that when the the recession came in, you weren't hit as hard as some of the other areas. How far down did your market fall? What percentage off from the peak? Yeah, I would say that depending on the product or the type of house or, or property that you had, it would be anywhere from 8% to maybe 13 or 14% on the top end. And I'll give you an example. I, the, the house that we bought we bought in December of 07, so as a you know brilliant real estate broker, we bought bought at the height, and you know the the, the value of my home right now, not including improvements because we put a pool and stuff in, but the value of my home would be down somewhere around eight percent right now. Now this year we have we're starting to see some of those numbers inch back up. I believe that 2013 will be kind of the first year of recovery of prices in our area. I don't think it's going to be fast. I think we may see a 2 or 3% increase in prices next year. But I do think that for us, like I said, we never saw a huge crash, but I think we have seen the bottom and we'll start to see prices come back up. Do you have a niche or a specialization? I would call it more of a geographic niche. So we have really, most of the marketing that we've done, how we've set our website up, the properties that we really try to go after from a listing perspective are going to be more what I consider the rule type property. So we don't, Liberty Hill in, until about three years ago or four years ago, didn't have any what we call track home neighborhoods. There was no sewer system in place. Everything was on septic. So we have really set ourselves apart as being experts and really understanding houses on acreage, whether that's from a half acre lot up to you know a five or 10 acre lot. Uh, we do quite a bit of farm and ranch sales. And so I would say our niche would be more, you know, instead of a specific product type, it's going to be more of a geographic area and really understanding how to sell those types of properties where you don't have true comparable sales. It's not like going into a neighborhood and you know there's, you know, five other floor plans that are exactly the same, maybe a few different upgrades or corner lots and things like that. This is going to be, you know, we have this house on five acres with this type of a barn and this house over here is on five acres, but it doesn't have a barn and knowing how to, you know, differentiate the two and how that affects value and advising not only sellers, but buyers that are coming into the marketplace, the difference as well, because you definitely don't want to represent a buyer and bring them out to, to our area and not understand if a house is priced correctly or not. And whether you're representing them and making sure they're not overpaying for that type of property, if they're not familiar with it either. 
I've got to imagine that there are all kinds of unique facets, such as maybe water rights. Yes, water rights. A lot of people come in and have questions about whether mineral rights are going to convey, and if not, who's got them, and especially on the bigger tracts of property, not so much in the neighborhoods per se, but you know, a lot of times if somebody's interested in 40 or 50 acres, you know, they want to know are the mineral rights going to convey, and if not, who's got them and what kind of rights do they have as far as making leases and what there's not a lot of minerals in the central texas area that that you have to be concerned with but you never know i mean they're finding new places where they're finding minerals that they've never thought they would find before either so uh, those are always kind of questions and concerns that especially buyers have when looking at property in the last year what percentage of your sales were residential homes versus farm and ranch I would say most of our numbers in the last year is going to be somewhere 85% is residential. Farm and ranch is going to be down there somewhere in the 4, 5, 6% range, something like that. And and sometimes people will want us to, you know, put all of our land sales together including residential lots and things like that, but it's probably in the 10%, you know, 8 to 10% range. Back in the heyday what I would tell you is, you know, in the 06, 07 05 time frame, land sales probably accounted for about 25% of our business. So it has been a significant switch over the last few years. And as the market comes back, it may come back to where we're able to, to move some of that dirt a little bit better or easier. Please list the different ways that you generate leads in business. I would say from a marketing standpoint, as far as you know, marketing our listings, the last six or seven years, we've really moved most of that marketing to be online. And the reason being the, the, the Remax franchise that I own, I actually purchased from my father-in-law back in August of uh, 2003. And so he approached Paige and I at that time and said, hey, I'm not really interested in running the franchise. Uh, you know, he wanted to semi-retire, not be 100% fully involved in the day-to-day business. And so we looked at it and, and basically bought the franchise from them at that point. And what Paige and I decided at that at that time was we didn't really want to change any marketing that we were doing. We wanted to very carefully track every lead that was generated from all those sources. And more importantly, where did we actually close business from? And so at the end of a year, we went back and analyzed the numbers and looked at, you know, where we were spending money and where we were actually making money closing business from. And it was very eye-opening to us. And an example I give all the time is at that point in time, we were advertising in the real estate book. And so I don't know what the cost was back then, probably 350 or $400 for a full color page inside. And I mean, we thought that was a lead generating machine. And it was as far as number of people that contacted us or called in about properties and things like that. But at the end of the year, we had closed zero deals out of it. And so, you know, not to we kind of looked at it and said, well, that's kind of a make you feel good. And yeah, I mean, the sellers always want to see their property in print and, you know, make it look real pretty. But at the end of the day, if we don't close one deal out of it and we've spent five grand or more throughout the year on that marketing program, you know, we basically just thrown $5,000 away. And so what we realized is, number one, because of our specialized area we work in, in that real estate book being, you know, handed out and and distributed all over the central Texas area, 
you know, buyers were confused. They might pick it up in South Austin and think that they're calling about a property that's close to where they want to live. And in reality, you know, we're 45, 50 minutes away. And so we said, you know what, that's not really working. But the web at that time was really starting to take off. And so we said, let's really focus our efforts on getting the properties out where we think buyers are going to be looking for property more and more. And so from that point in time, we just really, you know, started focusing a lot more efforts on getting our properties online and where the different places we can have them and where do we think buyers will be that, you know, are going to be looking for property number one and then specifically for the types of properties that we have listed and those areas are where we really need to focus getting the properties in front of. So it sounds like you narrowed your your focus, you narrowed the target that you were going after, your target area was too wide with these real estate books and you wanted to narrow it down and the internet allowed you to do that. Yes, correct. And then what we have really focused on since that point in time is number one, creating a very specific website. So when buyers do find it and land on it, it's very easy to navigate and has the information that they're looking for. So, you know, my website is not set up. I mean, you can get on my website and obviously do property search through IDX and and find properties in Austin, but there's not going to be a lot of information about buying a condo in downtown Austin. I mean, that's just not what our specialization is. So we have really focused our efforts on the website to be the specific towns that we cover, the specific types of properties that we cover, have lots of information about those areas and property types and towns. And and so if you're a buyer looking for a horse property in Williamson County and you come across our website, you're going to be able to find those types of properties, read about the community and the fact that you know it, it's set up for that that lifestyle. Other things that we started doing was figuring out where else would people be looking. So a lot of our properties, we will, we pay money to be able to advertise on, on websites like landsofamerica.com or lands of Texas. And they have all kinds of different websites associated with that particular company. But if you're a, if you're a buyer in the marketplace and you're looking for a house on acreage, that may be one of the sites that either you know about and start looking at or through a Google search, you come across it, and then you're able to search, okay, now I'm going to search Williamson County, now I'm going to get you know, down closer to specific school districts that we want to be in. And my job as representing a seller is to get their property maximum exposure into the marketplace. And if that means I need to have it on that land website, then that's what we do. So we've gone and, and really tried to figure out exactly where those properties should be. Commercial properties, same thing. We, we put all our commercial properties onto LoopNet because commercial is a whole different animal and a lot of commercial brokers and buyers don't use MLS. So, you know, we've got several commercial properties along the highway coming through our town and we want to make sure that we get them the correct exposure as well. So really focusing on, you know, where am I going to get maximum return for my sellers? Because that's what my job is, is to get them in front of as many potential buyers as possible. It sounds like what you've done is You've recognized you're in a small niche, so you've niched down into your niche. Instead of trying to be larger than you are, you've gone down tight into your niche, and you've become a magnet for people that are interested in your geographic area and also type of property that you're promoting. Yes. Yeah, and we're we're actually in the process of starting a program right now to do the same thing, but expand south of us towards Austin. So we're actually looking to penetrate some new neighborhoods, but we're going to take a lot of the same ideas that we do for the rural properties and 
use that same program for these neighborhoods. And so for an example, a neighborhood that we may be interested in going in, we've already uh, bought a website that has that neighborhood's name, uh, and I'm going to use the neighborhood in Liberty Hill, but it may be, you know, SundanceRanchListings.com, and we're going to create a marketing program, a mailing program, a direct mail program to really try to get people that are in that neighborhood to understand that we know their properties. We're creating a whole separate page on our website to show that we specialize in it and we'll have a lot of information and links to their HOA and things like that. And what we will do is in our direct marketing program is basically try to drive them to the website to see that we specialize in it. They can go look at all the competition that's on the market. Our IDX will be already set up on that page to just show properties in the neighborhood, uh, have a lot of seller you know, tools and eBooks and things like that that they can get to. But basically take the same strategies that we've used in the rule and say, let's go try to dominate or at least pick up market share in neighborhoods that have great turnover, that have quick sell times, that we haven't had much market presence in before, that we think through a, a fairly short, and until we get completely through the program, I don't know what short will be, but fairly short, meaning you know two to four to five month you know, program to be able to penetrate that market, get some listings. And then as most agents understand, once you get listings and signs in the yard, the snowball effect can, can start taking over as far as, oh, well, now we see their signs and we see that and sold signs and all the power of a lot of the other marketing that you do. I want to go back for a minute to something you mentioned. You said when you first took over your office, you started tracking everything and you mentioned the real estate books and you discovered things weren't working out. My question is, how did you do the tracking? How were you tracking what was going on and what was happening in that book? We track a couple of different things. The first thing is obviously we track total number of leads that come into the office. So we're either taking a phone call, which goes directly onto a lead sheet if it's a if it's a buyer. And I'll I'll talk specifically buyer side since that's what generally makes the phone ring. But so if a buyer calls in, we're, we have a lead sheet that, that we're taking the information down on. And one of the questions is, what made you call us today? Or we may know because they may say, hey, we drove around this weekend and saw drove by a house with your sign in front of it at 123 Main Street. Okay, so we know they're calling off of the sign. But if, if they don't tell us, then we're asking them the question, well, what's causing you, you to call us today? And the answers are varied. I mean, it, it would surprise you. Well, I saw it on such and such website this weekend or maybe we did drive by it or we picked up a flyer at the house or basically you want to take all that information down. So back then real estate book ad came, you know, call came in. Well, we saw your ad in the real estate book. So number one, track all the the total number of leads that come in. And then we have a separate spreadsheet that we keep track of all kinds of information about our closings uh, on a monthly basis. And then they all go to a total sheet for the end of the year. And a lot of the things that we do when an agent, like one of my buyer's agents closes a file and they turn their, their closed file in, one of the things that has to be answered was the source of that particular buyer. So they have to be very careful about when the lead first gets to them that they're writing down, well, this was an internet lead. Well, I don't want to know just an internet lead. Where exactly did they come from? Was it Realtor.com? Was it our website? Uh, was it the virtual tour company that's hosting our virtual tours? Maybe they just stumbled upon it there. And then that goes into our spreadsheet. So at the end of the year, I know very specifically how many transactions we closed that were buyers that came from Realtor.com and then what percentage of our business 
is from Realtor.com. So, I mean, we keep totals of transactions, volume. And the one that I'm not sure that a lot of people really track because we, we're, as agents, we get caught all caught up in the numbers game. So it's always, well, we sold, you know, 115 deals last year. We We sold $28 million or whatever. What I keep track of the most, where I think the most important numbers are, are commission income generated from those sources. Because a lot of times what we have found in tracking the numbers specifically is we may have a high number of sales from, and I'm just going to throw something out, but from, you know, Lands of America, for example. But if I come over, I may realize that the total number of commission dollars that brings in is not that great or the, the sales volume is not that great. Well, it may be because we're selling a lot of land deals, you know, that may be $80,000 lots versus our website that generates leads where we're selling $250,000 homes. So, you know, it's important to know the number of transactions and where they come from. But one of the most important numbers I look at is commission dollars and how much commission does each one of those categories bring. We do the same thing on the seller side. If somebody calls in, we will ask them, well, what, what caused you to call us today? That's a little bit harder in our market to track because we have such a large market share. And we've been here for almost 30 years and our market presence is so well known that a lot of times sellers are like, well, we we see you everywhere or we see your signs everywhere. And we do so much community marketing, uh, moving truck, billboards, signs, involve, involvement with the schools, T-shirts. I mean, we do so much to be seen in the marketplace that sometimes it's hard for us to get very specific on what what was it specifically today that made you pick the phone up and call us. So we will have a category called reputation that a lot of sellers will fall into, but we know that's because of a lot of the local marketing that we do. But then we're tracking referral. Well, so-and-so told me to give you a call. Well, that's a referral. Number one, I want to know who the so-and-so is because we will follow up with them and we have a referral program that we send things out to, to people that refer us and we can talk about that if you want. But uh, it's very, you know, what we're trying to do is really get very specific on where our closed business comes from because that's where we want to continue to spend money and focus our efforts and, you know, make sure that we're expanding our marketing programs in those areas versus maybe we, we've tried to, and I'll give you an example, this year, Lands of America, we've tried a new program where we're more prominent on that website, but we haven't really seen the number of leads increase that much. So we're going to work it through the next quarter or so, but then we'll heavily evaluate next year whether it's worth the additional expense or were we doing just as well just by having our you know normal not enhanced listings or banner or whatever it is that we may be doing on that website. So it sounds like you do a lot of testing and tracking. Coming back to the tracking, so far what I'm hearing is you're tracking everything by asking the lead when they call in. Do you track anything using technology? For instance, do you use different phone numbers for different types of advertising or a different web form lead tracking system on your websites? Or is it just all going into a central database and you need to talk to the lead in order to determine their source? Most of it is manual. We used to do the, the IVR system and we quit the IVR system about a year and a half or two years ago. Pure reason was is the number of drive-bys and, and leads we were generating from that dropped significantly. I think part of that has to do with the fact that buyers can see much, much more about all these properties they're interested in by sitting in their living room with their computer on. 
So the need to get in the car on the weekends on Sunday afternoon and drive around neighborhoods and pull flyers and things has gone down. At least that's our perspective from our marketplace. So we changed our program at that time and started putting QR codes onto our flyers where you can see a, a virtual tour, mobile virtual tour. And so we're able to track, you know, people that are actually looking at that. But from a, a pure tracking standpoint, if somebody registers on our website, they will automatically drop into a follow-up drip email campaign, depending on if if it, if it was a seller form they filled out or a buyer form. But then my buyer's agents actually have specific plans that are designed to help them follow up as well. Because I, I don't really want the lead to just drop into a, a drip email with no personal follow-up from us. So if we get a lead that, that registers on our site and we get both an email and a phone number, my agent is going to call them specifically. And based on a mastermind group of agents in Austin that we have that will actually meet this Thursday, but we meet about every five or six weeks of top agents that I know around that we've been doing this for years, bouncing ideas off and things like that. With Out of the last meeting that we had, one thing that one of the agents commented on and we had a good discussion about was how many times are we following up before we give up? And a lot of the statistics and things show that the conversion rate increases significantly with like six or seven follow-ups versus three or four. And so we're now testing our follow-up program with, with my buyer's agents to say, now we really need to hammer them a little bit more. I mean, because it goes from like maybe 50% or 60% success rate at, at number five follow-up and number seven follow-up is like 88. I mean, it's just that much more. But they will have a plan, and they, we've got a, a database program where they put all of their leads into, so it helps them to keep track of the leads and where they're at, and they launch plans, so it just automatically reminds them, hey, today I need to give so-and-so a call, or today I need to send you know, our email number three out, because we've got them already pre-written and pre-planned and things like that. What software are you using to set up that follow-up system? We just switched. We're almost completely converted over to a program called Realty Juggler. We had been with Agent Office since I was in the business. Switch names, is, I think it was Agent 2000 back then. But problem that we saw with Agent Office and what my IT guy was telling me is that they're not keeping up with doing enhancements and upgrades and updates and things like that. And he just saw that potentially there could be a point in time where uh, we get a new operating system that Microsoft or whoever comes out with that the program won't run smoothly with. So we thought, you know what, we'd rather look at cloud-based system. Uh, it's so much better for us because we can get onto it anywhere we're at from our phones, from home, without having to have a, a VPN into the office or whatever. So the process has been somewhat slow because we wanted to make sure that all the data switched over that our plans were able to get set up correctly. And I wanted it to be set up to where it would help us be more efficient than even how we had the agent office program set up. So we're probably 95% done with the conversion, but it's I can tell that the, the efficiency and, and how I think it will help us improve our conversion ratios, I, I think will be significant once we get it rolling 100%. Last year, the majority of your business, about 48% of your business, came from repeat referral, past clients, sphere of influence. I'd like to talk to you about what you're doing there to make that happen. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and your sphere of influence? Well, I, I kind of know that number since we're 
in this conversion process, but total people that we have that we're following up with right now is around 430 or 440. I don't know the breakdown this specific second on what, what are past clients and what are sphere of influence. And a lot of that, because we're in a small market, are both. So we may we may have people tagged as both sphere of influence and past clients because we may have a marketing program that is specifically just from somebody that's actually closed a deal with us. And we may have another program that may be specifically just for, you know, sphere of influence type people that we have more of a personal connection and relationship with. So uh, we kind of put them all together as far as what I've got, but it's about 435. How we keep that list up or, you know, decide who's in it and who's not. Basically, when a deal closes, like from my buyer's agent standpoint, they've got a whole checklist of things that has to be done before their file can be turned on and they get paid. One of those would be you let us know where where we need to put this person into our database if we need to and how you want them categorized because we basically categorize people as A, B, or C if they're past client or sphere of influence, same thing. If it's a client that's been a huge headache that we really don't want to necessarily follow up with or we think maybe the people they know would be the similar type people, which is what we have found a lot of times, you know, then we may not even put them into the program. Uh, we may classify them as a, a client D if I need to maintain their information and things if I ever had to go back and get old phone numbers and notes and things like that. But uh, we may not even put them in, in part of the program where we're going to continually stay in front of them and send them marketing pieces. I'm just kind of thinking in my head, that seems like a small database, 430 people, yet it generated you know almost 50 transactions for you last year. So that's a really high success rate. Are these people referring a lot of business or doing a lot of repeat business? Both referring quite a bit and doing and doing repeat. And I think part of that is that we last year we got away from this, which is which may be part of the reason some of our numbers were down for last year. But in previous years and this year we started back being very specific in the things that we want to do to stay in front of them. Whether it may be a, a market update letter that we're mailing to them or currently right now we're doing a Thanksgiving pie giveaway next Tuesday. So that means we sent a postcard out a couple of weeks ago letting them know that we're doing this and you go to our website and fill out a form and tell us what kind of pie you want. That program in itself will have multiple touches to those people before the event, which is why we like doing client events. But for an example, that postcard went out. Then on Friday, we sent out an email reminder uh, with a direct link. So it was super easy for them just hit the hit the link in the email and go to the form and fill it out. We will follow up with phone calls this week, as well as one more email that goes out. So we're able to touch our clients multiple times around events. And then obviously the face-to-face with these people is huge because you're able to catch up on what's going on and how's the family and kids playing sports and always somewhere in there they're going to want to know, well, how's the real estate market? So we're able to give them you know, a true update of what's going on and have that conversation of, hey, have you thought about investing? Because right now is a great time to invest. Or do you know of anybody that may be thinking about selling and, and, you know, upgrading their home because interest rates are so low? So, I mean, we're able to have those conversations and specifically track, you know, after an event. I mean, it's almost always at least three or four referrals and upwards, depending on how big the event is and the turnout we have, you know, upwards of maybe 10 referrals out of out of a, an event like that. So, but you have to be very specific on what your goal is behind it. 
I mean, number one, like this pie, this Thanksgiving pie event, I mean, our number one goal is to say, hey, thank you for doing business with us or thank you for referring people to us in the past. But there's always the, you know, what's in it for me behind it. And we know that because we will do that and spend a few hundred dollars on this event, you know, at the end of the day, we get two referrals. And even if just one of those closes, you know, our, our return on that investment is huge. I mean, it's just, it's better than any, any return on any other marketing that we've ever been able to track. I want to go into the events some more in a minute. First, I just want to talk about this, this list, the 430 people. I'm fascinated with that. You've been in business for 12 years. You have to have more than 400 past clients. So my question is, you must be removing people from the list. Why are you removing the people from the list? Part of the reason why the the list would be that small is most of the time in our market, if a seller is selling, they're moving completely out of our area. Like we had one this year that was moving to New York. So we don't necessarily stay in touch with them and follow up with them. If I know almost for certainty that they will never be coming back to our area, because most of our marketing is really targeted to to trying to get them to repeat with us here or refer people here that we know they have a good chance of sending me one or two leads a year. I know there's going to be a lot of people that say, hey, but if you keep up with them, they can refer other people that may be coming to the area, which is true. But our our marketing program is, we've gotten it to be so specific that we only try to keep up with people that are here locally. So if my business is 50% sellers and 50% buyers, most of the time, the majority of those sellers are not in my area anymore. So that would be part of it. We do remove people. And it may be that, you know, we've, we sold somebody a house three years ago. And since that time frame, they've gotten a cousin that's gotten in the business. And next thing you know, we see their house listed for sale with, you know, with the cousin. Well, you know, at that point, there's not really a whole, doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to continue to try to keep up with them for additional business if I know they've got a family member or another friend or a spouse that's now become an agent and all that sort of thing. So there are some people that we take out for those specific reasons. And then if we've had somebody in our database for a, for a long time and we've spent a lot of money marketing to them and we never see them come to an event, uh, we never get a response, we don't get any business from them, then we will back them out of the program or significantly drop them down to a C or D client where they're getting, you know, less and less contacts from us. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, my goal is to generate business from it. Uh, and it doesn't make sense for me to continue to do a mailing piece and, and invite people to do this sort of stuff if we're not generating business from them. Yeah, there's two schools of thought on building these lists. One is throw everybody and their cousin into the list and build it up as big as you can. And the second school is your school, which is reduce the list just down to the people that are going to either repeat business with you, do business with you, or refer business to you. It sounds like you fall into the second school of thought. Yes. Our thought behind that is I can be much more effective in the marketing that we're doing on a smaller number, say under 500, uh, versus if I'm just doing massive amounts of marketing to 5,000, I can't be that effective on 5,000 in the cost behind it. Now, today I know follow-up with 5,000 can be done a lot easier through email marketing programs and things that I can, you know, have not a whole lot of cost in and, and do blast emails and, and things of that nature. We may look at 
trying to incorporate more of that into our business. But when you're specifically spending money to to mail a postcard or a letter, you know, that I may have 60 cents in by the time I'm done, doing that to 5,000 people for a small return versus, hey, I can be really targeted to these people and we're going to follow up with them multiple times again around events or make phone calls. It's a lot easier to manage, in my opinion, the smaller amount of people. And we do pretty well with getting those repeats or referrals out of them and, you know, things, things like that. Yeah, let's talk about that now. So thank you for helping us define your database. Talk to us now about the contact. How are you staying in front of these people? What are you doing? Some examples of things we would do would be like a quarterly market update. And what we have switched to in the last couple of years is we actually use a a program called realmarketreports.com. And we use that, that particular program for lots of our business. But basically what it is is a guy that's got a basic program set up to go in, get information out of MLS and puts together about a five or six page report about exactly what's going on in the marketplace, number of listings, days on market, you know, trends up or down. And you can be very specific or you can be broad. And basically what we've done is is create the four or five towns that we work in. We have one of those reports for each of those towns. Number one, it helps me when I go on a listing appointment because I've got a nice report written. It's got color graphs, but it's got all the data to back it up. So different personality types like it. If you're a high eye, you're going to look at the color graphs and say, oh, that looks good. And if you're a C, you're going to go to the back page where it has all the data and information and charts and all that sort of thing. So we use it with listings. We have we have that posted onto our website. So if you go onto the website and you want to see what's going on in the marketplace, you can click on that. I think we require you to sign up for it, but you can sign up and then see all the different information about our markets. But what we'll do is once a quarter, we'll take that information and send it to our past clients and sphere of influence. Because again, especially in the last few years, every time we see somebody, what's their question to us? Hey, how's the market? What do you see going on in the market? So this is a, a touch that we're able to send to them that really gives them information that they're wanting to know about. We do try to do several client events throughout the year. Like I mentioned before, the the client events have multiple touches around them. Several years ago, we did a event called Christmas in November, and it was basically our big client event of the year, which used to be our Christmas party. But what we found is trying to do a Christmas party in December with all of our clients and their work parties and kids' events and programs at school and things like that, the turnout wasn't great. So we decided to, to try to move our event into November. We called it Christmas in November. It was at a pretty cool rustic event center here in Liberty Hill. And so what we think is really cool about events is the fact that you get to have multiple touches to your clients throughout the event process. What I mean by that is, you know, about six or eight weeks prior to the event, uh, you can send out a reserve the day card. So there's a touch there. Clients are thinking about you, things like that. You know, then three or four weeks before you send out your invitation, that's the formal invitation, RSVP, you know, try to get people to call in, email in, go to your website, register, whatever you're doing. And then obviously we would make phone calls. Once we started getting RSVPs in, we kind of knew who hadn't contacted us back. And so we would start making phone calls to try to, you know, see if we couldn't spur on some more activity. So prior to the event, you're going to have anywhere from two to three touches to your clients because the ones that have RSVP'd, you're not going to call to remind, but the ones that haven't should have gotten the 
reserve the date, the invitation, now you're making a phone call or leaving them a message or whatever. Then obviously you have the event, so the people that show up to the event, you've got another touch there. And again, I would go back and tell you the face-to-face interaction is really priceless because you're able to build that rapport and catch up on what they've got going on in their lives and everything else. Then what we would do is the people that come to the event afterwards, we would send a handwritten thank you note. So if it was one of my buyer's agents, buyers, we would have them write the note. If it was a seller or people we're currently working with, whoever knew that person the best would just say, hey, it was great having you at the event. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving and and Merry Christmas, holiday season, whatever. So they would then get a personal note, which you know they're going to open and, and read. And then a lot of times we would do a touch with pictures and things like that, that maybe even the people that didn't come, you know, would get a little letter that says, hey, we had a great turnout this year and here's some pictures from the event. If you weren't able to make it, hope you can make it to another event that we hold soon. So you can have, you know, anywhere from four to six touches of your clients within a two to two and a half month time period. And so being very focused like that, that two or two and a half, three month time period, you should be top of mind as the agent for those people. And so on top of the other, you know, either monthly or quarterly mailings that we're doing or email blasts that we may be doing, events are a great way to to keep yourself in front of them. That particular event was normally very successful because it was somewhat local. They didn't have to drive a long ways. Really cool facility to hold it at. And as I grew up, I, I was very involved in singing and actually got a voice scholarship to North University of North Texas that I went to for a couple of years. And so what we had focused around that event was not only a dinner and pictures with Santa and things like that for the kids, but we actually performed a concert. So other people that I knew that, that sing, I might have up there with me or, you know, I'd have basically a seven or eight or nine song, you know, short little concert. And on top of that, I would have a guy come out that would actually record it. He was a karaoke guy, but he had high quality recording equipment and it wasn't very much. I mean, for a few hundred dollars, he would come out and basically record the entire concert. And then we turn around and make a Christmas CD that we then gave to those clients during the Christmas season. I mean, during December, at some point in time, we would actually give them a music CD from that concert. So that event just had lots and lots of touches around it. Not all of them, you know, do you do that much, but that particular event was pretty cool because prior to Christmas, then they were getting a CD that they got to listen to while they were there with Christmas music and the kids can sing along and things like that. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. How many people would you invite to that event? How many people would show up? How our database is set up now, that entire ABC, SOI, and past clients would all get invited. And we would have at that event somewhere, it's been a few years, but we would probably run 125 to 150 people at it. And so the cost there, what made us actually change was as the economy slowed down in our business, slowed way down and we were looking at expenses to cut, that event was pretty costly, but the return was good. As things slowed down and we didn't really have the money in our budget to do that, we did scale that back. The last few years, we have 
gone back to having a more intimate Christmas party. We have moved it back to December, but it's more a, a come and go. So it's not technically a timed event because what we found is people can't commit to coming to something from, say, six to eight. But if it's a come and go between five and eight, you know, then if they've got kids at practices or, or programs, you know, they can stop by before, they can stop by after, and it's just more of a come and go. We would hold that at, at our house, at our personal residence. Even though the turnout might be smaller than what we had at the other event, the face-to-face interaction was much more intimate. And a lot of times the comments we got were, you know, I can't believe you're opening up your house to, to have us over and things like that. We would still have Santa Claus there and shoot pictures with the kids with Santa and email those back out to the parents or give them a, a disc. A uh, long time ago, we gave them discs. Now we just get email addresses and email them the pictures of their kids with Santa, which a lot of times they come back and say, hey, now we don't even have to go take pictures with Santa at the mall or we're using that as our Christmas card picture and things like that. So things that don't cost us anything besides having Santa Claus there. But this year we decided, I've always heard of the agent's huge success with doing the the pie giveaway at Thanksgiving. And so we're not doing the, the big Christmas event in December this year. This will be our first year to try the pie giveaway, which we will actually hold at our office. They have to come by between three and six next Tuesday, I believe, if they have registered to, to get a pie or whatever. And then again, we have the face-to-face interaction and giving them an item of value that costs less than 10 bucks. I think they're nine or $10 for a huge pie that then they get to take and have at their Thanksgiving dinner. Back to the, the Christmas party, when you were doing the big one and you had 125 to 150 people show up, the dinner, the whole nine yards, uh, what was the cost? I'd have to go back and look, but it was somewhere around, we had to, to uh, guarantee a number to the event place, but we were normally over that. So it was somewhere around $17 a person, something like that, which gave us the event center. They did all the food, catered it and all that sort of thing. I think the the guy to record, to bring all his equipment out, record, go back and do about half of the editing was like $500. Once he was done about half of it, I would go down to the recording studio and help him tweak at some hourly rate. And then uh, we would actually have somebody, we would create the master CD and then we'd have somebody do all the reproduction and put them in cases and stuff. I can't remember what the cost on that was, but it was just a few few dollars per CD. I mean, it was well worth the value of it by the time we were able to hand it out to the clients. In my mind, I was just doing some quick numbers, so probably three to $5,000. Sound about right? Correct. Yes. Yep. And so you get a couple referrals. That takes care of that. Absolutely. By having that event in November, where our market normally slows down October, November, all the way through February, our numbers would actually stay up pretty well because we would get some referrals. We were top of mind at a time where a lot of agents are kind of shutting down their business you know, we kind of ramped up at that point in time and, and got those referrals. But I will tell you, in speaking with agents across the country and going through ideas and things, you can still be pretty dang successful by doing the smaller event, like the event at where we just held it at our house. We did all our own food. My wife, like one year, my wife loves to make chili. Well, like we can do chili for, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 people, not a lot of cost involved. I mean, we may be in food at three or $400. Everybody on the team would bring a dessert. So, you know, we don't have a lot of cost there. You're obviously not paying for a location because you're having it at your house. You still get the one-to-one interaction with your clients. 
and you can still have a pretty good success rate at getting referrals out of them or repeat business or at least have that interaction with them be in one of those events for $500 or less. So you don't necessarily have to go out and spend the big, big dollars, which was an eye-opener to us because, I mean, we love that other event. And market comes back, and we've been away from it for a while. We may look in a couple of years to going back and trying to do that. But what what we found is that if we'll change it every few years, we get either new people involved that that might not have ever come to the the Christmas in November, but they'll come to the house or they're going to come to pick up the pie this year. But if you change that around every few years, it's not the same every time. So, I mean, people are more interested in saying, Oh, hey, they're doing they're giving away pies this year. So let's go show up at their office and, you know, get the free pie. So you, you, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of your events if you if you change them every so often as well. The pie giveaway, you're trying this. It's about to happen. How many people have replied and say they want a pie? Well, the email we sent out on Friday, I've probably over the weekend, I've probably gotten another 12 RSVPs. What we're requiring with this event, which we've never done before, is we're really pushing them to go to the website. We've created a special page on the website to where they have to go in and sign up for it. So we're hoping that we're able to get updated information if we don't have it, phone numbers, mailing address, and email address. We're requiring all of that so that at the end of this event, we can go back in and make sure our database has all the most updated information. But I would say total reserved right now is probably around 20 or 22. And like I said, we'll make a, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at my computer screen when just came in. But as we push through this week, we'll make some phone calls. I'm sure we'll have somewhere, you know, we're hoping somewhere in the 30 to 40 range. Some of the other agents that have given me the ideas that I network with kind of across the country said the first year, if you have 40, you're doing really good. And, you know, the ones of them that have been doing it for three or four years, you know, they may get 100 people, but, you know, we're going to be ecstatic if we get 30 to 40 people sign up for it this first year. About 10% of your list. That's great. Yep. Are you putting on any other events during the year or are those your two events? We've done other events. Texas is a huge football state, high school football, and small town especially because everybody goes to football games on Friday nights. Our football team back in 06, 07 timeframe were really good. They won two state championships. So we have done what we call tailgating events a few times and what that would entail is basically invite our clients, same thing, multiple touches ahead of time. Not not so much a long ways ahead because, you know, we could tailgate almost every, you know, Friday afternoon. But it'd be, you know, send out a postcard. On that stuff, we'd post on Facebook for a lot of the local people. Even if they weren't clients, hey, still stop by. We're going to be tailgating, you know, prior to the football game. And we just set up in our parking lot. We used to have a bounce house, moonwalk thing. We'd have that set up for the kids and we just brought our barbecue pits from the house up and just did really simple stuff, sausage and uh, hot dogs and, you know, chips and dip. And it was just a come and go type deal. But it was, hey, if you're coming in from work at six o'clock and you don't have time to go home and feed your family, stop by here, grab something to eat and grab a bottle of water or Coke. And then, you know, you can head right up to the game. So we've done things like that. Again, it's more trying to get that face-to-face interaction. Our office location is one of the best possible locations you can have in town. It's right on the main highway. One of the main roads that goes through downtown is right on the other side of our properties. You know, we got a lot of visibility just from people driving by that day, whether they stopped or not, because we had the bounce house up and 
or blow up, you know, six foot blow up Remax balloon and, and things like that. So yeah, we've done other things. Uh, we've talked about potentially next year looking at doing a, a movie event because I know some agents that have been really successful in doing movie events where you rent the movie houses out. We're always looking for new ideas that we can possibly do that just gets us more interaction with our clients. Very good. So Shane, we were initially talking about the ways you contact your database. We've been talking now about the events and the fact that the events allow you to make multiple contacts before, during, and after the event. You also mentioned that you put out a quarterly market update. I assume that's being mailed. Anything else that you're doing that you have scheduled in that you're going to make a contact to your database? Yes, we also do birthday cards. So if we get information, which we try to get as much information from our clients while we're working with them and prior to closing, if we get birthdays that goes into the database, then we send out uh, birthday cards, which my assistant actually, we've got birthday cards, but then she'll write personalized message inside of it, especially the kids. Because I don't know how many times I've had parents come up and say, hey, we really appreciate you sending our daughter a birthday card last week because it really shows that we do have them on our mind and we're thinking about them and, and things like that. So touches like that, I mean, we'll do birthday cards. If we know anniversaries, a lot of times we will try to do calls to the husband prior to an anniversary to say, hey, you know, your anniversary is coming up next week. You know, just things like that, that if we have the information in our system, you might as well use it. I mean, if if you're going to ask for it and then never do anything with it, it seems kind of silly. With Facebook now, and I'm not super great on Facebook, especially trying to use it for business, but what I have been trying to do is find our clients on Facebook, become friends with them because Facebook reminds you of their birthdays also. Instead of just posting on their main page, hey, happy birthday, because they'll have 50 of those at the end of the day. What I'll try to do if if I see that is just send them a private message on Facebook. So that's going to be totally separate than the gazillion of them that they get on their main post page. And so just trying to do things like that. Other mailings that we may have, I mean, we do some email follow-up. And one thing that attracted me to this Realty Juggler database program, which I'm sure a lot of them do, I just didn't look at, is the email program out of it is very simple to do. And so we did a daylight savings email the Friday before daylight savings or the Thursday before. So we created a what looked like a postcard daylight savings that we just inserted into the email. And then it got sent out to all 400 people that we wanted it to. So that's a touch because it comes from us. But it's also something that's kind of helpful that just says, hey, don't forget to set your clocks back Saturday night or you'll be early to church or whatever. So it's just things like that that are like those are all free. I mean, the email stuff is all free. But it's a touch, you know, at a time where, you know, you might not touch them. We've done other cards at holidays that people don't normally do things around, like Fourth of July. A few years ago, we sent out a Fourth of July card. Hope you have a great Fourth of July because nobody's actually mailing cards at, at that time of the year. We've done lots of different things throughout the years of, you know, just again, it's just trying to keep your name and, you know, top of mind awareness for them because you never know when they're at work and they just happen to be talking to somebody that says, hey, yeah, we're thinking about selling. If you're not top of mind awareness, then you're not going to come automatically to mind. And so the goal is to try to be in front of them as much as possible without just drowning them and stuff so that you are that agent that they think of. Let's talk a little bit about the referrals. You mentioned you have a referral campaign. 
Is that happening before you get the referral or after you get the referral? We've done both. We've actually had referral contests in the past. We haven't done that in a few years, but we have run some campaigns in the past that says, hey, you know, we're looking for referrals and what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, have a contest and whoever gives us the most referrals by the end of the year is going to get two round free trip tickets on Southwest Airlines. We did one year and things like that. But the program that is always in place, whether we're running a contest or not, is if I get a referral from somebody, they will immediately get some sort of a gift from us. It used to be that we wrote handwritten cards with movie tickets in it or restaurant gift certificate or things like that. What we've gone to in the last year or so is to send them a book, one of the books that you can get from Simple Truths. Simple Truths is a company that puts together these, what I consider little coffee table books, but they're square, very nice, high quality, really shiny pages inside the book, lots of beautiful pictures, and they have tons of books now. But, you know, maybe one on leadership or maybe one on, they've got one that I love that's called How Child Spells Love, T-I-M-E. And it's all about, you know, you got to show your kids that you love them and spend time with them and, you know, just really cool books. And so what we've done is started to send those out because the books, if you just buy one at a time, I think you can buy them for 15 or $16. If you buy multiples of them, I mean, you can get them down as, as cheap as about 10 bucks a piece. Well, we used to give out 20 or $25 gift cards to restaurants or 20 bucks in movie tickets. And so I'm like, this is a shelf life item. What we have found is we do a lot of, try to do a lot of shelf life items, closing gifts as well. But what this is is a shelf life item. And we actually now handwrite our note inside the book. So when you open up the front cover of the book, our handwritten note is there that says, hey, thank you so much for referring Joe and Susie Smith to us. We look forward to taking great care of them. If there's anything we can ever do for you, please let us know. Sign it. Well, then if they have a friend over and that book happens to be out and they're flipping through it and they say, hey, who was this from? Then conversation comes up that it was from us. So I think it's even more powerful than just a straight personal note that they will read, but most of the time that goes in the trash at some point and they, they get a gift card and they may use it right away and they may use it four months from now and not remember who it came from. So we think that this is a pretty cool program because it is shelf life. You do have the opportunity for somebody else other than them to see it and ask questions about where did that come from and things like that. We really do a lot of the same things with our clothing gifts and trying to give them something that will be around for conversation and always just trying to allow them to, to remember us as their agent. You generate a bit of your business from market presence or reputation. Is that geographic farming or is that something else? Yeah, I would say most of it is geographic farming. It's really just trying to create a presence in the marketplace that just makes you seem like the dominant agent there. So some examples would be we do a, a newsletter to our what I call our core business area. So I would tell you that would include the Liberty Hill School District and then two of the other little towns that kind of surround us that we work, Leander and Bartram. And that would be we may do a, a mailing of this newsletter to, say, six or 7,000 households. And we've done that for, I think, as long as I've been here. I think Clyde was doing it before we moved here in, in 2000. So what the newsletter has is it'll have a recipe, which we find people keep them all the time because it's got a good recipe in it. It'll normally have a tip trick here, you know, winter time now, here's things you need to keep, check your furnace and things like that. 
little ideas about the house or home improvement ideas or staging ideas, things like that. And then the majority of the rest of the newsletter will be advertising our property. So we separate them out by commercial, by land, lots, by, by farm and ranch, and by residential. The back page of it will have six or seven newest listings that we have actual pictures of the houses. The rest of the houses are just listed with descriptions on the inside of the newsletter. So we send that out, and that's really more of a market presence type deal that really is more targeted to generate listings for us. Like I said, we don't have a ton of people that sell and buy within our same geographic area. So we will generate some buyer calls from it, but we don't sell a whole lot of buyers out of the newsletter because it has to be mailed to you. So unless a family member picks it up at, at somebody's house, we're just not generating a lot of buyer. But it, it is one of those things that just keeps our name in front of our market as a whole. And because there's things in it that they keep either the article or the the uh, recipe, you know, we do a lot of times walk into houses on listing appointments and that newsletter will be sitting on the coffee table because it's got something of value that they want to keep. But other things, obviously, sign penetration into the marketplace. So the more listings you have, the more signs you have put up. We also try to put other signs up if possible. So if we have a listing and you're driving down this county road and you have to turn down this other road, if we can and it's feasible, we'll try to have a directional sign right there that's all branded with our name and phone number to allow somebody to know, oh, well, they've got a listing down this road and have them turn down there to see another sign at the property. So with multiple signs or a program with multiple signs like that, it makes it look like you have even more listings than you possibly do. But if you have a lot of listings in a in a geographic area, you are perceived as the expert and that's who most likely at least one of the agents that people will call when they're thinking about selling. Billboard, we've done billboards in the past. We had a billboard in the marketplace for about 10 or 12 years. The costs continued to go up. And again, when the when the market slowed down, that was one of the expenses that we cut because I could not specifically tie any actual closed business to it. It is one of those things that people say, well, we see your billboard a lot. and But it wasn't anything that I could track that somebody specifically called me from the billboard that I could say, hey, we made $5,000 from it. We are looking at potentially a new location for a billboard if it becomes available. Right now, another company's got it, a dermatology company's got it, but it's close to my office, and we would look at potentially taking that if it, if their contract comes up, because we can use arrows to point to our office and things of that nature. Moving truck we have, so that's driving around the, the community all the time. We do a lot of functions with the school. We try to get real involved with the school. The school district is a huge pull for families to want to move out here because they, the schools are so good. So we have allowed the school to use our moving truck on multiple, multiple occasions. Football team used to use it to move equipment from one field to another. We've done t-shirt programs with the schools, teacher breakfast with the schools. We've done stuff for the PTO, uh, pumpkin giveaways where we take donations and all the money goes to the PTO. So people ask me all the time when I say it's a multifaceted program, I mean, we just have a lot of different fingers out in the community or out into our geographic farm. That's what you want to call it. That just has our name out there all the time. It's basically a lot of stuff. And that's why I say sometimes it's hard to specifically find out why a seller calls in because you don't know. I mean, Maybe they saw us doing the pumpkin giveaway a couple of years ago, or maybe they saw the moving truck today drive by and they said, hey, we were thinking about selling. I'm going to call Shane real quick. And then when we ask them, they're like, well, we see your signs everywhere. And 
you know, we get your newsletter and, you know, it's not super, super specific. How often do you mail out that newsletter to the six, 7,000 households? This year we will mail it out four times, I believe, three or four times. We used to do it about nine times. We did start cutting that back when the market slowed down. But part of the reasoning was, is we thought, well, nine times, at that point we went from like nine to six. So we thought, well, if, if you add another week or two between mailings, is the market really going to notice? Probably not, but I can get another, you know, save potentially another $5,000 cost out of mailing it. And then we said, well, let's go back down to once a quarter, which I think is about where we're at now. It may not be a full four times this year because of the, the week rotation that we have it on. And we, we look at specific slow times in our market or times where we really want to ramp up listings to, to do those mailings. So it may be, if you average it over a few years, it may be like three and a half to four times a year. But we haven't really seen a significant drop in effectiveness based on us cutting four issues out a, a year. Shane, tell us about your team. Tell us the titles of the people on your team, how many people are in each position, and what those positions are responsible for. Okay. I've got one admin person, which, you know, to most people, we call her our listing coordinator, uh, but she's also director of first impressions because her desk is at the front of our office when you walk in. She's most likely the one that will answer the phone when you call in unless she's on unless she's on a line. But her primary job is to really help me on the listing side of things to make sure the listing is processed correctly and the follow-up is done. She does do all the birthday cards and things of that nature. I've got a part-time bookkeeper who may work 15 hours a week for me, something like that. But she takes care of all of the Remax stuff as well as all of my personal stuff. So bills come in, she writes checks. She's not able to sign the checks, but she writes them and has it organized and keeps up with, with uh, QuickBooks and helps when it's time to get stuff to the CPA, takes care of all of that sort of things, and then basically brings checks to me to sign because I review every expense that goes through this company and have done much more so the last four or five years. I mean, P&L, budgets, reviewing that stuff you know, on a very frequent basis is now the norm around here. My father-in-law is still a broker with us. His role on the team is really to do more of the commercial transactions because he's more familiar with that. The majority of the commercial listings, besides maybe two or three in our office right now, he holds. But he still does some business. I mean, he he's, has sold several homes in the neighborhood that he lives in because people know him. We're both very active in our church, so he does quite a bit of business from people that want to do business with him from church or personal past clients. He still has one developer which was one of the big developers that we had about 12 years ago that he does keep in touch with that he's helped him buy additional adjoining properties to a ranch that he will eventually develop one day. So his role is to kind of just keep his core business going and then obviously take care of most of the commercial transactions. Then I've got what I call two and a half buyer agents. I've got two that are full-time all year long. And then I've got one who's a junior high math teacher. So she will work like one week in a month, and she'll still do personal business throughout the school year, and then she comes on the schedule full-time for the summer. And the buyer agent's role is basically just to take every incoming buyer lead that we generate, follow up with them, qualify them, make sure that they can get financing, basically just run the buyer side of the business. And then my role as team leader or rainmaker, 
obviously make the phone ring, generate leads, and then I take all the list. Currently, right now, I take all the listings in in the office. Then we have a virtual assistant that helps process listings. Her job is basically to get to get the listings online in all the various locations that we we put them. So she loads them onto our website. She creates the virtual tour. Uh, we use Tour Factory, so you've got to go load those pictures and descriptions and stuff. She enhances it on Realtor.com. We pay to enhance the listings on Realtor.com, so she does that. And then anywhere else that it needs to be specifically loaded, like the lands websites we've talked about or LoopNet, uh, she goes and gets the property uploaded to all of those locations. When she's done, she will send us an email back that says, hey, I'm finished. I think she just puts it in Word, but it has all the web links, so we can click on the web links really quick, go look, make sure it's correct and then we don't have any issues the other cool thing about that is then we can forward that email to our seller and say hey your listing is up everywhere take a look and here's several links of places you can go find it a lot of times the seller will come back and say hey man it looks good but can you add i took a call this morning from a from a guy that we have a lot listed and said hey can you add this to the description because they think it's important and you know so we can tweak the listing so that we know the sellers are happy with how it looks and what it looks like and, and things like that so that's basically the team, three buyer's agents, one admin, a bookkeeper, one virtual assistant. In that list of folks on the team, I didn't hear anybody that does closings. Is there anybody on the team that's responsible for taking it from the contract to the closing table, or is each agent responsible for doing that? Each agent is responsible for that. In the years where we were doing 200 transactions a year, we did have a full-time closing coordinator. As things slowed down, and I wasn't very successful in finding somebody that could do it, we did try a virtual assistant for closings, but we found that there was a lot of duplicating of tasks between the agent and what the what the virtual assistant was doing. I think part of that had to do with I, I had not trained the agents well enough to say, hey, you've got to completely release this, and we hadn't trained the virtual assistant well enough to do that, to take it completely over. So they felt more comfortable, and, and unfortunately at that time our business had slowed down enough that they were able to basically take every closing that they had and run with it. Now, we do have very specific checklists, timelines, follow-up systems in place. One of the tasks that Ginger, my admin person, will do is when they turn a file in that's contracted property, they have to fill out this complete checklist and here's what's been done and Here's when the inspections have to be completed by. Here's when title's got to be completed. And so what Ginger will do is she will put those very critical dates on her calendar with a one- or two-day reminder. So if the agent happened to forget to put that in their system, she emails them and says, hey, don't forget your your buyer's time for financing ends you know, in two days. And so we do have some checks and balances there since I don't have one person dedicated to watching that file completely. But for us, it's worked well. I mean, if we got back to where, you know, we're running 200 deals a year and they've got, you know, they each have six properties or seven properties under contract each, then I would definitely go back to finding somebody that could run those files for us. How are you compensating your buyer agents? So we do basically just a commission split. The program that they are on now, which we switched to a couple of years ago, but basically a straight 50-50 split. We do bonus them they sell one of our listings, we'll pay them a, a 10% addition. So they'll get 60 and we'll keep 40 on a on a listing that they sell for us. And it's, I mean, obviously we want to sell our own listings because it helps the bottom line, but 
it does incentivize them to say, hey, be sure that you've checked all of our listings out as a potential property for the buyer. Obviously, we represent the buyer and we need to find them the exact property they want, but I don't really want you overlooking something that we might have that could be a fit. And by the way, hey, if you get them under contract, we'll pay you you know, a little bit extra. We have run through different compensation plans. We've done a, a sliding scale based on production. We've done sliding scales based on production where I pay most of their fees. We've done it to where on the 50-50, they pay most of their fees. And I just found that it ultimately it really worked out that the it almost always averaged out to the 50-50. They pay their, their own fees. That way I don't have that expense in case they don't produce something this month. Again, that change came when the market slowed down. They all produce pretty consistent now, but as things slowed down, several of them I had the monthly REMAX expenses and expenses for board dues and things like that that I really couldn't afford when things slowed down and they weren't producing. So I made the decision at that point, I want them to pay their expenses. We'll just go on the straight 50-50 with the they sell our listing override deal. Shane, you've mentioned that your production has gone up and down. The market's been topsy-turvy. Is your team currently profitable? Yes. Profitability was one of the largest things as the market slowed down so much between 07 and 09. We were running fat at that time expense-wise. I mean, we were running you know, just crazy numbers of expense. And when the market's good, you think everything you're spending money on is is helping to create that when in fact a lot of it was just purely the market itself was just some of it was order taking and some of it was you know it, it wasn't necessarily things we were throwing money at so we didn't cut probably quick enough i mean in the 0809 time frame we were not really profitable at all cuz i just i didn't cut expenses quick enough but one of the things now is i look at a pnl minimum monthly basis. So basically, I want to know every dollar that we spent, each category. I look at it now this year versus last year. I look at it for the month. So, you know, I just got done looking at it for, well, a few weeks ago, I got done looking at it for September. And I want to know, okay, here's my expenses for September. Here's my expenses year to date. Are my average expenses per month the same or does it look like I'm cutting them still? And what does it look like versus where we were at this time last year? We don't add things to the expense if it's not in the budget. I mean, we, you know, when we were rolling and we had plenty of income and revenue coming in, anybody call in that had the next greatest thing, oh, yeah, we'll do that, and you sign up. And we don't do that anymore. I mean, keeping our expenses low is very, very important. I think right now, I think our expenses run right about 34 or 35% of our GCI which I think is pretty good. There's probably a few places we could tighten up on. But at the same time, it, it, you get to a point where your business will be affected if you cut too much more because the revenues will come down. And so I'm I'm involved in a mastermind group that we're just starting right now with three other guys from around the country, basically an accountability type group. And one of the discussions that we've had in the last couple of weeks was, at what point in time do you quit cutting expenses and try to generate revenue? And in order to generate revenue, you might have to spend some money. But that's where you have to be very careful about tracking. Because if you spend a dollar, it better bring back $5. And if it doesn't bring back $5, then you don't spend it. So, I mean, you want to be real careful about 
where am I going to spend the money, and will it actually bring the revenue in to cover it plus make make it profitable? But I would tell you in the last two years, our our business, even though the numbers have been down, our our business has been profitable, and it's purely from the standpoint that we're just very careful on expense on the expense side of our company now. Sounds like your net profit margin is around 65%. The 35% will be expenses. And then the agent split would be another roughly 26% or 7% on top of that on average. So it would be, you know, profit would be somewhere in the 40% range. Yeah, that's right in line with what we're hearing. So that makes a lot of sense. I, I appreciate you disclosing that for us. Shane, do you have a business plan? Yes. Yeah, business planning, when I first got into the business and we first bought the REMAX office, didn't have one, kind of set goals. I'm a huge believer in goals, written goals that you look at constantly. I I learned the power of goals one time at a, I think it was at a Brian Buffini event. Paige, my wife and I had gone to one of his mastermind big big year deals and they had a, a goal setting session, which been through that, you know, multiple times, but we sat there and did the goals and Seeing what the power of a goal can do in what Paige wrote down was she wanted to start exercising and wanted to be able to run a mile without stopping because she had never really been into running and things like that. So she wrote that down or that, and then she wanted to be able to run a 5K by the end of the year or something like that. Well, what was interesting is within 12 months, shorter than 12 months from that event, she had run a marathon. And so, I mean, in, in her mind, she thought she wanted to be able to do this in, in a 5K, but once she started training and saw real, realistically the couch to 5K plan and how you get yourself up to run into a 5K from sitting on the couch was easy enough. And she got into liking running and then running with other people that liked running and they were running longer races. And I mean, literally within a year, she had, she had finished her first marathon. So it was at that point in time where I really realized the power of the written goal and that you put that in writing. And like in this mastermind group of guys that I'm going to work with, we've already shared our goals with each other. Well, now I know it's not just me. I mean, these guys are going to be hounding me and and holding me accountable to that. But if you write it down and you have it to where you can see it and you're focused on it, I can remember the first month that we ever did a $100,000 gross commission. I'd never even thought about that. But again, it was that it was at an, an a, it might have been a star power buyer university or something, but I heard an agent talk about, you know, the first time he thought about doing a hundred hundred thousand GCI in a month, which was mind boggling to me at the time. And then the fact that now he's disappointed when he doesn't do that. And so I thought, well, that's interesting because we're gonna do that as a team. We're gonna focus on it. We picked them we, we picked a very specific month early in the year. We in January we said and I don't remember the exact month, but I'm going to say this year in June, we're going to do $100,000. And then we started breaking it down. So this is what we need to do. This is the kind of marketing and this is the kind of calls and events. And when daylight savings come, we're going to keep the office office open later than normal and all these sorts of things. And interestingly enough, that month, just over 100,000 GCI. And I'm like, part of it is because we did some of those extra things, but I think part of it is because we were so focused on it and we had a goal, we had a prize at the end. We took the entire office and their spouses to a super nice restaurant and rented out a party room and had pool tables and just had a really fun evening. And that was kind of the goal behind it, but, or the prize behind it. But knowing that 
if we had just sat there and said, hey, this year I'd like to do 100,000 GCI in a month, but not pick a month, not be very specific and not have it in writing, I seriously doubt that we would have actually accomplished that. And so going back to business planning, I went to one of the universities that Howard Brenton had. I think it was called Business Specialization, and I don't think they did it very, very many times. But one of the core things I came away from that class was you have to have a business plan. It's got to be in writing. And they actually went through the process and what's included and what you should have in it and things like that. So every year starting about now, we start to look at our numbers, analyze our business, and start putting the business plan for next year together. And what it, what mine is, I think everybody's can be different, but what mine does is basically defines what our company is and our current structure, who the key players are, who the team members are, and what their roles and responsibilities are. It talks about the current state of the market, actual real estate market and prices, and are we up or down, and what does inventory look like? And so, I mean, we do have a, an analysis of the marketplace in there. How does that look compared to what our numbers are? You know, did we meet our goals last year? Were we short? Kind of analyze why either one way or the other. And then really goes through and defines what our marketing plan is going to be. And I mean, by that, I mean, what programs are we going to do? So we'll take the newsletter, for example. Are we going to do the newsletter? Okay, this year we're going to do the newsletter and we will get the newsletter out at least three times or at least four times. The next one may be we are going to do the pie giveaway. So, I mean, we list out the 20 or 30 or whatever things that we plan to do marketing-wise. It's going to spell out the websites. It's going to spell out whether we're going to pay to enhance on realtor.com or not. So, I mean, it it's a very detailed list of what we plan to do marketing-wise. And directly following that will be 12 monthly calendars, January through December, with specific dates on when things will go out. So, if we know we're going to do a, our market update letter in March, we will pick the date that that goes out, say it's going to be March 12th, and it will be written there in the week before March 12th, we start putting the report together, we write the letter, we start getting it in envelopes and ready to go, and on March 12th, that letter goes out. So you know at the beginning of the year, everything you plan to do marketing-wise, you know exactly when it's going to go out. You really don't have any excuses because what, what used to happen is, okay, newsletter, well, gosh, how long has it been? Well, you have to look, oh, my gosh, it's been almost eight weeks. Well, we're supposed to send it out every six weeks or five weeks. You know, and you just, it kind of gets behind and you never do catch up. And so that's what my business plan looks like. It does have goals. So it will say our gross commission income goal is X. This is how many deals we want to do. We're looking to increase our average sales price by this amount of numbers. It may talk about, you know, we want to grow our team this year. Or we don't want to grow our team. Are we looking to, to add another team member or not? And so it's it's about the actual plan itself, not counting the calendars, is probably a good six or seven pages. And then obviously the calendar's there. And like I said, then you're up and running and ready to go for the rest of the year. And you know exactly what you're supposed to do, when you're doing it. We put in the calendar when the conferences are we plan to attend. So we'll know when certain people are going to be in and out of the office and things like that. Shane, why are you successful? I think I picked that up a lot from my parents. I can remember always growing up that they were always very positive and could always be whatever you wanted to be. And, you know, we played sports growing up and you can be the best at this sport. And, you know, we're behind you 100 percent. It was not a lot of negativity at all. I can remember a story. Not I wish I could tell you how old I was, but it's probably I was probably eight or 10 
or maybe 12, I don't know. And I can remember one time listening to the radio and hearing a DJ and, and thinking, you know what? I think that'd be cool to be a DJ. So I was talking to my dad one day and just said, hey, dad, I, you know, one of these days I think I'm going to be a DJ. And one thing that he told me was, son, that'll be fine if you're the DJ. Just make sure you own the radio station. You know, it was all it was always things like that that was, you know, think bigger, you know, the 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 prize at hand. I mean, think, you know, you want to be the DJ, great. Own the radio station, be successful enough, and then you can sit there and kick back for four hours and be a DJ. So it was always that. Owning the jet ski rental business when we were in college, that was our parents coming together and saying, Hey, my brother and I had worked at a marina down on the coast for a few years and they could tell that we were figuring out around the system on how to be as lazy as possible in that job and still get by. And again, my dad just came back to me one came back to both of my brother and I one day and said, Hey, you know, I don't really like that attitude that I'm seeing there. And then what what if we looked at this venture? What if you guys looked at doing a jet ski rental business and I'll help you as much as I can, but I mean he really put it back on us to say, but you're going to go approach the bank. I mean, we talked to his banker at the time, but we had to put the performer together. And here's where we think the numbers are going to be. And here's why it'll work. And so it's always just kind of been instilled. And my dad owned his own business and was an entrepreneur. And so I think it's just a lot of things that were, were taught to us from a very early age, you know, that the sky's the limit. I go back to when I was building houses, when we had the opportunity to move here, I was had been pretty successful as a superintendent, but had really capped out at what you could do. I mean, obviously, you could move up one step and be a project manager, and that could last, I mean, you, that might be years and years and years. You're capped out at what you can make and what you, what you can accomplish. And what I realized in getting into real estate is if I take a lot of the things that I've learned and a lot of the work ethic that it takes to be successful in those positions where you are capped on what you can accomplish – and bring that into real estate, really the sky's the limit. I would tell you the other thing is that I'm I'm like a I try to be like a sponge as far as just learning. I learned early on, obviously, from Clyde handing me the first star power tape that I've listened to to meeting other successful agents around at conferences and just saying, Hey, you know, can we have lunch? Can we do this? Can I sit down and pick your brain? It's like the little mastermind group that I have of all local agents that we meet every few weeks. It's, hey, let's sit down and talk about ideas. What are you doing in your market that's working? Here's what I've done, or here's what I picked up at a conference, or what questions do you have that we can all answer? So it's always figuring out who's successful out there and how can you copy what they're doing, because there's no really reinventing the wheel. I mean, this stuff works, and people have tested it, and people have tested things that don't work, so might as well let them tell you that doesn't work and not you know, go waste your time trying something that we know is not going to be successful. So... I think a lot of it comes from how I was brought up and a lot of the values that were instilled upon me. And then just my understanding that other people can help you and catapult you a lot farther than you can do on your own. Shane, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Really, I would tell them if they could align themselves with a successful team, I would tell them that's what I would do. Even ultimately, if they wanted to be their own individual agent and or create their own team business later on. If you're brand new coming out of real estate school, one of my pet peeves about real estate schools is you come out, they get you to where you can pass the state exam and you have no clue how to run a business. And I think 
because of that, the only true way to really learn how to be successful is to be a part of a team or at a minimum, find yourself a mentor that you can partner up with, that you can bounce ideas off of, that you can shadow, that when you have questions about a transaction or taxes or, I mean, any part of the business that, that you are you have not been taught yet, that you have somebody that you can go learn from. But the team environment, to me, because the transactions are there, if you stepped onto somebody's team as a buyer agent, even if you want to list eventually, you immediately can get deals. So from the standpoint of, hey, I need to eat next month, I mean, unless you just have a huge bankroll, starting in the real estate can be a slow process. But the buyer side of the business is much quicker than the listing side. I mean, we all have to agree if a buyer walks in today, we go under contract, we eat in 30 days. If a seller comes in today, we sign a listing, we have to sell the house, which may be maybe next week, but it could be three or four months from now and then a 30-day close. So from that standpoint, I think you build your confidence. If you get on a good team, they will teach you their systems. They will teach you scripts and dialogues. If you don't get on a team, I would tell you you need to learn scripts and dialogues. I'm sure there's lots of products out there or get, you know, with, another, like I said, a mentor and say, hey, you know, what scripts and dialogues do you have that work? How do you overcome objections? And I would tell you, you just have to practice, practice, practice. The second thing I would tell a new agent is you need to write goals and you need to be ambitious. I mean, you can accomplish much more than you think you can. And by listening to interviews like this, the interviews that I've heard that, that you've done so far, I feel like a super small fish compared to, you know, some of the people that have done 500 units and things like that. I enjoy listening to those because it opens up my mindset to say, you know, a hundred or even in our best year, 200 deals. Yeah, that's nice. But there is opportunity for me to do much more than that. So to align yourself with people that have already been successful and, and can take you under their wing and teach you and, you know, just try to learn as much as you can as early on in the process as you can. Well, Shane, you give excellent advice. You survived and thrived in the recession by taking decisive action, leading with a business plan, making your marketing budget accountable for results being willing to cut expenses, staying positive, and focusing on your past clients and sphere of influence. Your parents programmed you with a success mindset, and you have taken it to the next level. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who generates 81% of his business from internet buyer leads and sold 301 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com.
Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.